This week on the PC Perspective Podcast, our review of the GeForce RTX 2060, a trio of new Corsair gaming mice, a look at AMD's CES announcements, a new high-end sound card from EVGA, and more, all coming up next in our CES 2019 Roundup. Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 528, being recorded on January 11, 2019. I'm your host, Sebastian Peak. I'm Josh Walrath. And I'm Jim Tannis. And we have a lot to talk about. This is our annual CES recap show. But, of course, it couldn't be just CES recap we also have some reviews to get to there was a rather big uh graphics card release and i will say right off the bat not expected um kind of short notice for everybody uh, on on the new graphics card coming out not just from nvidia but also of course we'll get to some amd news shortly but we can't ignore the fact that a brand new member of the rtx family is is with us the new arrival is the rtx 2060 and before we get into performance numbers uh i just want to say that i based on early feedback and just kind of like my own impressions of this card if you've read the review at pcper.com you already know uh nvidia is really kind of targeting 1440 performance with this card it's kind of your 1080 ultra or 1440 normal high settings kind of graphics solution so not what you'd expect from a a xx60 product like going back to the 1060 this thing has 2x the performance of a 1060 it has significantly more performance than i would have expected from the name and the price kind of matches the performance so it's a little bit more expensive than you'd think of for a mainstream 1080p card at 349 dollars msrp and the performance is higher than you would necessarily expect from a mainstream card so it's if they were to name these cards based on resolution, this would be the RTX 1440. And up to the 2080, 2080Ti, those would be like the RTX 4K cards. So for those of you waiting for a 1080p gaming solution in the RTX family, that will probably have to wait for what I would assume would be like a 2050, 2050Ti if it follows the naming convention of previous generations. But if we look over the numbers in the review pretty much across the board this is providing performance that is somewhere in between a 1070 and a 1080 there are times where this will perform neck and neck with a 1080 or even edge it out depending on what you're doing with the graphics like the resolution detail settings are and there are times where it's sandwiched right neatly in between them or kind of matching a 1070 but you're getting Last year's like high end performance at this year's like you know three hundred three hundred fifty dollar price point, which is impressive. But the most impressive thing to me is just how far ahead this is of the ten sixty six gigabyte card. This feels like almost like a TI. Like they haven't done a TI in a couple of generations now for the sixties. There, I don't think there was a nine. Uh, there was was there even a nine sixty TI? There wasn't a ten sixty TI. Because they differentiated the 1060 with the 6 gig and the 3 gig version, which had slightly different performance in addition to the memory disparity. But certainly, 
very performant, and I couldn't really fault the MSRP. I know that there was disappointment from people looking for that mainstream price and performance, but I don't know. What do you guys think as far as 349 based on the benchmarks that we've seen so far? And I will say I haven't done 1440p. I, I got full HD and UHD uh, done before I had to get on a plane for CES. I'm going to be revisiting it on the bench behind me at 1440 and, and get some other tests done. But just to get like GPU bound, I went UHD instead of kind of meeting in the middle of 1440 before I left. But that will be added. I'm going to follow this up with a part two. But again, like the the performance that we've seen so far at this price, what do you think? I think it's it's fair. I mean, they're they're looking at the market and they've got something that is OK. I mean, it's 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 not blowing anybody's hair back. Okay, maybe mine, but uh, you know it's uh, you know it's it's you kind of get what you pay for in there. I think that a two ninety nine would be a much more interesting price, especially since in in many ways it's as fast as a ten seventy and and sometime you know approaches the ten seventy ti. Um, but you know you've got the uh, DLSS option, you've got the ability to run RTX sometimes poorly, from what we've seen, but. You know, it's it's kind of uninspiring, but it's reasonable. I I hate to be as vanilla as that. <laughs> but I, I don't I hear you. Like I when I was testing it, I was thinking like it you always look for that story. You know, you we want to write interesting stories and we like interesting products. And this one seems to so neatly fit into the performance envelope that its price suggests that it almost, I guess it would be, it, like you said, it'd be more compelling if it was 299, we'd be like raving about its performance for that price level. But at 349, it seems that they've priced it very fairly. At least we're not having the conversation that this is too expensive. Like there, there is unhappiness at the high end with 699 being the base price of the RTX 2070. Uh, 2080. Oh. I think the 2070 is at 599. And yeah. obviously, like what you can actually find them for at retail is a little bit different. If you're if you're finding those cards at that price, I've seen at least a couple examples of each on Newegg in the last couple of days. And of course, there are alternates, different uh, board partners that have versions that are currently being sold above MSRP. So you're seeing well over 700, even approaching 800 dollars for some of the 2080s out there. But to get as close to the performance of a 2070, even as you can get with a 2060 because essentially this is the same GPU as a 2070. It is a modified version, a so-called cut down version of a 2070. It's what the TU 106. Yes. So it has 1920, uh, CUDA cores. Uh, you have six gigabytes of memory and you have less memory bandwidth. I believe it's 336 gigabytes or a gigabit per second memory bandwidth. Uh, yeah, but it's not a full 256-bit bus. It's 192-bit and 6 gigs, well, I think. Correct? Well, this or did is, they this is using GDDR, Yeah, this is using uh, GDDR6 memory. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the 192-bit uh, memory bus, but it's 336.1 gigabytes per second instead of 448 with the 2070. And, and actually, in our benchmark results, 
the 2070, just as a little footnote, is the only RTX card that I had on hand to test that was not a Founders Edition. And actually, the Founders Edition cards, even though it's kind of the sort of reference card, has a higher boost clock than a normal like board partner base card would have. So the the performance of a reference 2070, like a, a Founders Edition 2070, would actually be a little bit higher than what we saw in those charts. So it, the the closeness that you got between the RTX 2060 and the 2070 would be a little reduced. There'd be more of a gap at Founders Edition speeds. But this card, that one aspect that I didn't get to, that I will be getting to, is overclocking. And this card is said to be a pretty good overclocker. So we'll see how close I can get to a 2070 at $349. is a pretty interesting uh, story when I get to that. What do you think about the memory, though? And this is something that AMD highlighted, and what we'll talk about later with the Radeon 7, is at 6 gigabytes, a lot of games pushing 1440p, I mean, obviously you're not going to be playing the latest games of 4K on this card, but at 1440p, there are some games that are going to be pushing up against that memory limit. Yeah, there are, and a couple of the, the games and the benchmarks that I ran are very memory intensive. So that's a valid point. I mean, I, I was kind of playing around with memory settings to make sure I wasn't memory constrained with some of the results. And because obviously the 1060, 6 gig, and this 2060 are both limited to 6 gigabytes. Everything else I tested was 8, I believe. Mm-hmm. 8 or, or 11. So it's... it's that, I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons they do target 1440 so specifically in their, their literature about this card and it being like geared mainly towards like an ultimate kind of 1080 card that offers great performance at 1440, I think is how they put it. Like not specifically saying this is your 1440p card. I think they'd rather somebody buy a 2070 if they're doing like ultra gaming on a, a 1440. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but part of the story also is going to be not just ray tracing because I don't think you'd necessarily want to be running uh, ray tracing on the tensor cores of the 2060. It, it, they had uh, a demo running, uh, their internal demo running on this card at their suite, but the frame rate wasn't as high unless you go DLSS, and that is not enabled yet in like the Port Royal benchmark in Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Once things actually start taking advantage of DLSS, and for those who don't know, that is... They haven't gone into a lot of detail about it. It's dynamic, and not dynamic. It is deep learning super sampling. So it dynamically analyzes frames and comes up with a more intelligent uh, anti-aliasing with... So it's, it's kind of like AI super... Screen. Yeah. AI yes. super sampling. Yes. So instead of like TAA where it's doing the whole thing, it says, okay, well, this is the edge of something. This is like it's it's doing object recognition and then it's only smoothing the surfaces that it really needs to. And it's using fewer samples. So the the performance difference when we were looking at uh, Port Royal side by side uh, running DLSS versus ray tracing, it was a huge, huge boost in frame rate to go DLSS. Well, and I think then, you know what they're they're actually doing there. Yeah. When you enable DLSS like that, 
I believe it is natively rendering at a much lower resolution. And then using DLSS, I mean, they're, they're resampling everything to, to, you know, a higher resolution. So you're running at 1440p, right? But it's actually internally running at a much lower resolution through DLSS. And so which would perfectly explain that would explain the higher frame rate exactly exactly yeah because yeah. but the, you know what side by side they it looks great and in fact to the naked eye especially after it was pointed out like look at the edges of things and suddenly it's like actually yeah instead of having that sort of glossy shiny look it suddenly had like a a, a little bit more of a sharp not like it wasn't any alias at all but sharp corners were sharp it wasn't that everything on the screen was slightly blurred Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, it, I don't remember the exact uh, numbers. I think it was the side by side demo they had at their CES suite was uh, without with DLSS off. It was high twenties, low thirties. Yeah. With DLSS on, it was in the mid fifties. And it's and you're right, like it, it subjectively looked better. Just standing there looking at them both, you, you the DLSS side looked better and had the higher frame rate. Whether we can get that in and start testing it and making sure that they're not tricking us. But even if they are quote tricking us, it, it still, still looks good. Yeah. If it looks good, then it looks good. And if you know, th- there might not be a uh, huge disadvantage there for most applications. I will say the uh, edges of objects and smoothness aside, the benefit of the reflections, like the water effects they were showing the, the reflectivity off of uh, like Chrome, uh, the round environments that they're able to do, all of that stuff that you can do with ray tracing, they're still doing with DLSS at higher frame rates. And if if you have a card, especially like this 2060, that you just would not want to enable ray tracing on necessarily at higher resolutions, if it can do it, and then the higher end cards are doing it at a much higher frame rate, then suddenly this becomes a lot more interesting and less of a like proof of concept thing. And suddenly like, oh, this is actually a viable option to enable in games and more reason for games to support it before like next gen hardware really makes it accessible with better performance. So, you know, something in my to watch. Opinion, mm. RTX stuff. I mean, the actual ray tracing is not as interesting as what they're doing with DLSS in terms of just being able to optimize performance across all of your stuff. It's, it's actually kind of impressive that DLS is able to work as it does. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I am interested to be able to do more testing on that and see, you know, some of your results as well. And, uh, yeah, I, that's a, it's, that's a cool technology. I remember back in like 2003 or something, I, uh, went to, um, NVIDIA's FX launch and, uh, I asked a question of, of, uh, Jensen Wong. I was like, you know, now that you've got this, you know, hugely programmable uh, product for the time, um, when you're going to implement like a shader-based AA, and he's like, hmm, shader-based AA. Wait, and we have you to thank for this? Away. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it, 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 you make call, a note. Call a like, lawyer no. immediately. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. no I, I think Any that, witnesses uh, to this, Josh? Uh, well, only a room full of, you know, 200 people watching the thing when I was able to take a microphone and ask him. I see. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I doubt I was the the catalyst. No, I, I definitely was not because there were a lot of very, very smart people working in NVIDIA. And oh. This was obviously something that they had thought of well before me when, you know, looking at, at how you could apply different versions. And, and TAAA, well, T, 
TSAA? Is that the one? I can't remember. Um, that's just the alias thing is what they were uh, what yeah. they had to compare it against. Yeah, yeah. So that's I mean that's essentially a, a shader based AA. So anyhow, moving along. Yeah, I mean yes, the, moving the, along. The thing about all of this too is that this is so early still. I mean, there are so few things that take advantage of this that we can really put into a practical application. Like Sebastian and I being at CES last week, and we saw from NVIDIA itself, we saw from their their partners, we saw from the laptop makers who are putting RTX Mobile. If I see another Battlefield Five demo, I'm gonna snap. Like they, they, they. We need to get more stuff out there to truly see. They've really optimized it. It looks great. Battlefield Five looks awesome. Uh, RTX, the the implementation there is great, but we've got to see more stuff still. So it's still but, so. But early. Jim, but Jim, look at the side of the car. Look at the fire. Yes, reflected the in the side of the car. Was, yeah, yep. yeah. We we've we've all seen it a lot. And of course, we're insiders, so we're we're looking at this a lot more than the average person. But yeah, it's time it's time for more games, more demos, more benchmarks. And speaking of benchmarks, this is not a real segue. Uh, the Corsair released a, a a trio of gaming mice, which Jim had the privilege of going through, along with a very nice mouse pad, as I see in this photo here. Yeah, they uh, so Corsair had their event they, uh, at CES. I think it was on Monday, and they announced these products. We had uh, gotten early review samples of them. It's an update to two of their product lines, as well as the introduction of a, of a new product in their mice category. Uh, and it's the the updated products are uh, they're nice updates. They're nothing revolutionary or anything. It's uh, the M sixty five RGB Elite, and then so that's their sort of pro gamer mouse. It's got the sniper button uh, on the thumb, so that you can uh, you can have one DPI for regular movement. You press that button, and it lowers the DPI for more precise movement. And that's actually uh, it's it's they you know they target it towards like if you're in a sniper mode and you want to have precise precision, but you can use that for productivity applications. Like I use it in Photoshop when I want to uh, very selectively crop something or it selects a few pixels, I can slow down the precision or increase the precision by lowering the DPI uh, on demand. Uh, so do you call it when you're working in Photoshop, do you call it sniping? I do. And I go pew pew. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's uh so it's handy there. It's nice that uh, they upgraded the PixArt sensors in it. So the RGB, the M65 RGB Elite goes to 18,000 DPI. It's going to be 59.99 when it launches uh, later this month. Uh, the other update is their um, uh, Iron Claw, which is a, uh, a mouse that has a much bigger... Actually, I think I've got it right here. It's just a bigger mouse. Uh, so it's got a... a for for palm grippers, they say. So if you've got a big hand, you want a lot of support in the uh, arch of your hand, uh, you can uh, you get go go with something like this. It's it's uh, pretty lightweight, nice big uh, scroll wheel, uh, and that's also got the eighteen thousand DPI PixArt sensor in it. So, so that would be really that would be really comfortable for Rachmaninoff, right? Yes, it would. With uh, his his big hands. Yep. Yeah. His big hands, yeah. and. Uh, Check, that's going to be that's going to be fifty nine ninety nine as well. And then the more interesting aspect of all of this is the Harpoon RGB wireless. This is their new, which one. is interesting because that's their low cost. It's lower cost uh, of the trio. Yeah, uh, it's a, so it's not as high performance. It's a ten thousand DPI sensor, uh, but it's still got selectable DPI modes and it's got side buttons and RGB. Uh, ninety nine grams on the weight. 
And uh, the difference now is this introduces their slipstream technology, which is what they're calling their new wireless technology that they're going to be using for all of their wireless peripherals uh, eventually. This is their first product, but eventually they're going to use it for headsets, keyboards. And um, they didn't directly say it, but it's something similar to Logitech's Lightspeed technology. So it's ultra low latency for wireless. That's their goal is to make sure that you can have a wireless experience uh, without requiring the wire. And uh, they, they don't have all the details. They didn't give us many details at all. Uh, but basically what it's doing is intelligent channel hopping. So it's going to automatically and dynamically switch between uh, wireless channels as needed to make sure that you've always got the fast lane to the to the receiver. Uh, it, uh, th in this particular case, it comes with a receiver for that slipstream, but you can also use it in Bluetooth mode and or or wired mode. Uh, so you've got uh, three choices there for how you want to use this mouse, and it's fifty dollars. Uh, so uh, a nice lightweight RGB mouse. So. Nothing, uh, you know, Slipstream is interesting. We'll have to see how it yeah. pans out. They, we need to see it introduced in more products. They said that it'll work with up to three products. So you can have one Slipstream receiver and connect up to three devices, keyboards, headsets, and mice. Uh, so when that, it, when those all, all get into the market, I think that'll be something worth revisiting to see how it works. As for now, it's a nice little mouse, very low latency, comfortable. Uh, so something to check out there. Yes. So that's the, uh, yes. I'm sorry. I was going to say standard Bluetooth has so much latency inherent in it and the way that the actual Bluetooth uh, standard is written, like uh, what they were talking about. I thought the slipstream was the most interesting thing about the whole presentation because they were talking about basically writing a new stack, like mm -hmm. starting over again and using 2.4 gigahertz and just a completely new way of sort of intelligently uh creating the lowest latency connection that they can, which I immediately am thinking about a headset. Like, uh, And obviously, in the future, we might possibly see this with like audio, and that would be great because that, unless you do something like get in a, like a headset that specifically supports like Aptex low latency and then get a Aptex low latency compatible dongle to hook up to your computer, and this if it's being sold together in one package where the, the adapter that you get when you plug it in gives you that ultra low latency. So you don't have that lip sync issue when you're watching video and that sort of thing. That's going to be a very, a very good change. Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for when they release more products in that with that technology and we'll see how it all, how it all works together. Okay. Now with those reviews out of the way, let's talk about CES. Yay. And let's talk about, Let's just get to it. Let's talk about the AMD keynote. And, you know, it, it took until the end to get everything. And we didn't really get <laughs> absolute <laughs> Josh. <laughs> Josh. Now, let me restate the obvious here. Uh, they didn't I mean, there cover was, everything until yeah. the end. Well, I mean, there was like then a they one covered more it all. Thing. It was a one more thing moment. Like it was Lisa Sue's like Steve Jobs moment on stage, where she got to tease like Ryzen desktop. But I, you know, the rumors and things leading up to this were it was all gonna be, like I was actually sitting here at the airport making charts based on the leaks and like okay, here's the different Ryzen SKUs and here's what the the desktop picture is gonna look like. And of course, we got a preview of third gen Ryzen, but the the headliner was Radeon 7. Uh, I'm sure you were following along, Josh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I figured that we would see a little bit of, of the Radeon, uh, Ryzen 3000 series. But, I mean, she kind of built up, uh, you know, talked about Epic 2. And then, uh, yeah, the 
the Radeon 7. That was the surprise. There there had been some people who had uh, speculated that you know Navi wasn't going as well as it should, and so that they were going to go ahead and take the 7 nanometer Vega, which initially they had only said it's going to go into you know high end performance, you know machine learning type stuff, institution, you know uh, what the Fire Pro what. Is it anymore? Is it still Fire Pro? I can't remember. My brain is turned to mush after I turned forward to forty. Well, there's there's Vega Frontier edition. Yeah, but that was that was that was the the content creation kind of. And the, well, know. I mean, they were emphasizing content creation a lot with this too. Yeah, like content creation and gaming, and it's kind of like you're all in one solution if you're doing compute content creation and gaming. Yeah, is how so they're kind it seems of selling like this card. This the Vega seven nanometer. I mean, obviously it's it's made on seven nanometer, but they've also apparently done some more optimizations. Um, they haven't really added anything spectacular to it. It's still you know basically Vega, but um, performance looks good. It's got sixteen gigs of HBM memory running at one terabyte per second of throughput, which I think that at uh, what did they say at at sixteen hundred p, it's can read the the entire frame buffer each frame at 60 frames per second oh. so i mean it it's some serious throughput on there it's going to be low latency and and uh, they didn't talk about power obviously we don't know how tsmc seven nanometers running we don't know how this vega seven nanometers running is it going to be another 250 plus watt you know card um you know, there were there were things about it that were surprising. The 16 gigs was surprising. Um, that they were even putting it out was a shock. Uh, you know, there are going to be other people out there saying, "Well, I knew that they do that." But you know, they had told us six months ago there there wouldn't be a consumer facing Vega seven nanometer car. They're expecting Navi to be out here. Um, Six ninety nine. What do you think of the price point? Well, I mean, it. I think that when you when you consider that it has 16 gigabytes of HBM2, that it was going to be it wasn't going to be cheap. That's not inexpensive. It's, like you said, it's extremely high bandwidth memory. The the JDX standard only just got updated recently to even allow stacks as dense as what they're doing to go up to 16 gigs, which is double what they could previously even do with HBM2. So well, no, it was the same because. If you think about the original Vega, 14 nanometer, it had two stacks of HBM2, and it was 8 gigs. Oh, it's okay. So you're talking about like uh, single versus multiple packages for the memory capacity. Well, the, this one has four. four, And so it's it's the previous was 512-bit wide. Wait, no. How does that all go? Anyway, it's it's double what what the previous Vega was, and those had two chips, and this is now four chips. So it didn't increase the stack, and didn't increase the speed, but you added double the amount there, and gotcha. had the full ten twenty four bus width. Anyway, yeah, the, I like just like the the standards now no, allow 4, for 20, the standards now allow for up to twenty four gigabytes. Which yeah. is the the old limitation was eight, but we're talking about a single stack. So, yeah. Uh, two. I mean, I don't know how in how crazy the power draw might be if it's just using two eight pin 
connectors. Like a, an RTX 2080 is using a 8-pin and a 6-pin. And... Uh, well, two 8-pins is 100 and... No, it's 300 watts. Yeah. That it can handle. I mean, I'm I sure think. it's 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 a, it's a pretty serious-looking card. I mean, the big three-fan cooler... I, I imagine that it's it's probably going to consume a little bit of power, but it's the the question is going to be at six ninety nine for for just a pure gamer, I guess. If all you're doing, if you're not loyal to one side or the other, you're just objective. You have seven hundred dollars to spend somehow on a video card, and you don't have a brand preference. You go to Newegg, and both of these are sitting there, and you have an RTX twenty eighty. So then it's advertising, well, you know, Tensor cores and ray tracing. And then on the other hand, you have the Radeon 7 sitting at the same price, which is giving you significantly more memory. And, it, you know, you're not getting CUDA cores, but it depends on what applications you use. Like, obviously, AMD is all in on OpenCL compute. So I, I guess it depends on what your needs are. If your particular needs are more of, like, what they're talking about with content creation, if you're doing, like something that uses AMD's existing compute technologies. And then you're getting something that is significantly faster than last generation's Vega with a lot more memory available to you. Then that will tip the scales, I think in this, in the favor of the Radeon seven, but for just a pure gamer, it is a little bit harder argument to make. And internally, I know that some more stuff since we reported this have come out. Uh, you can look at uh, uh, slides on performance that AMD's released, which is performance relative to previous generation. They're not showing benchmarks against the competition or anything like that at this point. So that may or may not be suggestive of how it does perform next to the RTX 2080 and not even getting into inflammatory remarks by certain uh, CEOs of uh, high-profile graphics companies. And their opinions of their competitors' technologies, but uh, both both CEOs have been speaking to the media recently. Let's put it that way, and offering their own thoughts about the uh, viability of their own graphics products. So, but hey, you know what? They also talked about Ryzen CPUs, and whether or not AMD is is neck and neck with Nvidia yet, and they're certainly catching up fast on graphics. They are really, really sticking it to. Intel in the last couple of years on just incredible price performance and just cores galore. So the idea of, you know, seven nanometer Ryzen on basically an epic package with chiplets that offer a sort of modular approach to the CPU's construction and the potential for additional uh, cores than just the eight cores shown on stage. Very interesting, and I'm sure I'm sure you have some thoughts about this, Josh. Maybe one or two. You know, when we first saw Epic Two last year, and they showed off the the bare chip, and you saw all the chiplets there, you know, mine just kind of starts racing. It starts th- you start thinking, there's a ton of things that they can do here, and there's a lot of flexibility. And if they take all the I/O off of there. I.O. is typically the kind of the lowest performing in terms of, of transistor performance. Um, eats a little bit more power. It's typically clocked a little bit lower. And uh, so they're taking all that off and they're really focusing on these Ryzen chips. And this is kind of untied their hands a little bit. 
So they could really put a lot of engineering into each design. And instead of having to, you know, synthesize this design across 15 different SKUs that are going to go from, you know, the low end mobile up to the high end, you know, Epic two, um, they've really focused on these Ryzen chips that'll, uh, be on, on desktop and then, you know, I'll go all the way to the server. Um, I think their mobile strategy is a little different, but we don't know anything really, you know, distinct about what Zen 2 is going to bring to the mobile. But at least in terms of, you know, being able to get an APU out uh, for the desktop that uses one Ryzen chip, and then you can have uh, uh, the GPU, a, a new Vega, or if they, you know, go Navi, which I doubt they will at this first generation, but you can, you know, plop another chip on there, and you've got this one big island handles all of the memory and uh you know it's going to have the basic you know sata ports and pci express uh it's going to be pcie 4.0 yeah um what first to market all... with 4.0 is what they were saying yeah for for desktop i mean there are server yes. products out there um yeah. that that are you know kind of more specialty and arm based some stuff that's 4.0 but uh, this will be the first desktop that uh, will utilize that and uh a lot of uh x 470 boards probably will be 4.0 compliant that you put a Ryzen 3000 series chip in or whatever they're going to call it and you've suddenly got PCIe 4.0 and that's going to be interesting because didn't you guys just look at the uh, uh, the the new NVMe controller that utilizes PCIe 4.0 and you're getting 4 terabytes per second or no not sorry gigabytes yeah Four gigabytes per second of just of, just four uh, gigabytes, bandwidth. Josh. Yeah, it's awesome. nothing. So um, it's really cool that they're getting a seven nanometer part. It's coming out a little bit later, and I think they wanted to. Epic Two was initially going to be a Q1 product, you know, a couple of years ago when they announced it. Now that's midsummer. The desktop stuff's going to be midsummer, and this is not surprising. We knew desktop was going to be later, but we didn't expect server to be that much later. But they're still going to be in uh, Intel to, you know, kind of a seven nanometer slash ten nanometer uh, type product. Um, uh, they, they've improved IPC. It sounds like uh, they're going to improve, you know, thermals and and clock speeds. I don't know how much. I mean, we've yeah, seen some pretty no final interesting. Clocks yet. Yeah. yeah, and and the reason for that, I think, is they haven't really built out the SKUs yet because they're still getting yield and bin data from what they're you know getting back from the fabs and i don't i mean they're probably gonna start big production here shortly if they want to meet um you know the the first you know middle of of 2019 release for all these products um but they're probably still getting a lot of data and still tweaking things at the foundry, working with foundry engineers. I mean, the design is it's set in stone, yeah. but they can do more things at the foundry to improve a lot of these characteristics. And so, you know, we're, we're probably seeing that and we won't know about the SKUs until probably copy attacks. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt. I mean, there will be leaks, but yeah, I, I just thought that, you know, the, the people who are saying, Oh yeah, they're going to announce all these SKUs and uh, parts, and then we're going to get the feeds and speeds and, I just thought that just seems really early. We we probably hear from a couple other different sources, and especially the motherboard guys, if they were ready to do that. And I don't think they are. So anyway, um, neat stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean the 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 demo on stage. Of course, they brought out Cinebench and 
the Zen 2 part versus the i9-9900K. So they, they wanted an 8-core 12 or 8-core 16-thread comparison. And the scores were very, very close. Uh, if you look over to non-text coverage, they apparently were pre-briefed and had their own uh, benchmarks before the event. But uh, the result the Cinebench result was for the 9900k was 2040 and the Zen 2 on stage did 2057 so it beat it at whatever clock frequencies which were not disclosed but even so it beat it at about 50 watts lower power draw with the test system at the wall so 130 30ish watts versus 180 from the Intel side so at least in that benchmark we saw an yeah, example of is, you know, a lot of people don't like it, but I think that it's a pretty solid benchmark. It's repeatable. It, it actually, you know, it's based on the Maxon Maxon products that actually utilize that code. So, no, I, I'm in favor of Cinebench. I personally use it for just my go-to CPU testing because, like you said, it's I can. It's not only is it repeatable, it's like exact. And at that point, you're basically just battling thermals as far as consistency of the test runs in that application. And it also allows you to go single or multi-threaded uh, and customize the workload that way. So it's a very good benchmark for CPU. And I, obviously, AMD is very proud of their results with Cinebench. We've seen that a couple times now. But it's just showcasing the reduced power consumption. I know that we've talked about other... Uh, process node drops and how that doesn't necessarily translate into like with the RX uh, 590 we didn't see a big decrease in power consumption but they were focusing on increasing frequency clock speed yeah. yeah so with Zen 2 apparently they have absolutely worked on total like power consumption is down but we haven't seen clock speeds yet so did they focus a lot on power did they focus on frequency did they try to do a little bit of both so that that's where i'm curious i would love to see some of those leaked like five gigahertz on an eight core part numbers that we saw from different rumors but i, I yeah I, I think we're gonna see about a max of, of 4.7 to 4.8 boost and just especially if they want to keep in the thermals that they're they're aiming at, because that I/O chip is still 140. Well, it's a 14 nanometer part, and it's still going to suck some power. And those chiplets are going to be really, really power efficient. But you know, when you've got one of those on there and an I/O chip, and you're trying to boost things up to five gigahertz, 5.2 gigahertz. I mean, it's gonna. I mean, we don't know enough about TSMC seven nanometer transistor technology in in an actual product to be able to kind of figure out some some basic hazy numbers and, you know, napkin math with uh, where it's going to go in terms of clock speed and and uh, switching performance and wire speed and all those fun aspects of, of chips that people don't always think about. They just think about big numbers. Yeah. Well, speaking of AMD, I just wanted to briefly mention, because it was in the news yesterday, uh, the street did a video interview with uh, the CTO, Mark Papermaster at AMD, about just just briefly touching on a couple of topics, including the Radeon graphics, where he just made it clear. I, I They apparently felt the need to, to announce that they are indeed refreshing the graphics lineup across the board in 2019. And he said that 
they started at the high end. So he was speaking about the Radeon 7 and that he said, you'll see announcements over the course of the year as we refresh our entire Radeon roadmap. So uh, I guess I expected a refresh anyway. Uh, what may be interpreted from this is maybe the refresh is going to be like Vega 2 derived instead of uh, any kind of rebranding or or we've already seen the the process node allowing the basically the RX 580 to be clocked up in the 590 product and offer better performance so in in this 2019 window what do you think like as far as a full line product refresh if they go 600 series is what's the likelihood that we're going to be getting more than the Vega 7 on on Vega 2 you think maybe it's just a high end it'd be like another like maybe, maybe less HBM2 memory variant uh Josh are you muted I believe Josh Yes yeah, so I was listening okay. to Baby Shark while Oh uh, no 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 stop no. <laughs> No, I think that uh, I think the refresh is probably going to be the Navi parts, and and they're going to be two or two smaller chips running on uh, probably a combination of GDDR5 at the low end, and maybe you know, and GDDR6 at the mid range, and um, you know that's really the the meat of the market. I mean, these six hundred ninety nine dollar parts are, you know, not everybody spends that kind of money unless you're you know a real competitive gamer or you have parents that are rich or you know you have a really good job and you you know have as a hobby um or you mowed lawns all summer long just to afford this one card uh, you know most people don't do that and they they're more willing to you know get a 200 to 300 dollar card because it's just more practical for a lot of people and so I think uh, Navi's going to really do a good job in addressing those areas. Maybe they'll release a higher clock variant of Radeon Seven. I don't know. I don't. You know, they, they, there may be some some room there uh, because it's still a very new seven nanometer part that they're showing off, and it is going to be available February seventh. Yeah, that's a lot closer than a lot of people expected. Yes, and so uh, that's going to be you know six months after that they they could very well have a a slightly boosted clock uh, you know Radeon Seven Ultra or whatever kind of branding that they want to you know Radeon Seven GTX. <laughs> Don't you love that? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, uh, I mean they're going to have you know top to bottom essentially a, a refresh, but a lot of that's just going to be the knobby parts at seven nanometer with you know a decent memory technology that's not HBM. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's let's talk mobile a little bit. And I just want to get this out there because I would say just about everywhere we went, there was RTX mobile on a laptop. Uh, everybody has their new RTX mobile laptop to show. I believe MSI said they were going to be first to market with one, but they're all going to be out there very soon. And uh, something like 40, 40 plus models already announced, already out in booths for people to, to demo this week. And obviously expected. I mean, anytime a new graphics architecture comes out, we expect to see the mobile adoption. This feels, you know, about right as far as the timing goes. And obviously the performance increases are, are there, generation to generation, considerable. 
in well, some it, cases. So it seems though like this is the first time in a long time that because they're releasing 2060, 2070, and 2080 mobile variants all together. Yeah, and it seems like that's the first time it's been coordinated like that. We we've had the equivalent mobile parts from uh, Nvidia in the past where you get a higher end part and then a lower end comes in a few months later, uh, or there's only two choices. Now you've got a full spectrum uh, coming out effectively simultaneously. And uh, apparently, I mean, we the thing though is we don't have all the details yet on all of the performance capabilities of each part. Um, so seeing how these stack up, seeing how these perform in, in real world applications, they have lots of demos, you know, here you can, here's your mobile video editing workstation, your mobile streaming station, your mobile gaming rig. Uh, but uh, seeing how they all, all shape out and, and how the thermal envelopes of, of each design can accommodate them uh, is going to be interesting. Right. Cause of course they're doing max Q, uh, but then there's the, the large form factor gaming behemoths, of course, yeah. the, the most exciting of which, and I didn't put it on the list, but I don't know if you saw the Alienware Area 51M. And don't don't mistake it for the desktop series. It's Area 51, the, the sort of triangular-shaped desktops. This is a massive, massive gaming laptop. And it. I talked to Patrick about it on uh, Twitch yesterday. It uses desktop processors, which are in just a regular socket. And you can take the bottom off and just drop in a different... CPU if you want to and has a very very beefy looking uh, thermal solution with heat pipes and and slightly bigger profile fans and things because it has the space for it but that is uh that's that's one implementation of RTX yeah you can go like basically desktop level and Holy that crap, starts that, that reminds me and this is aging myself back when the Pentium two was was released some notebook manufacturers were actually doing slotted Pentium 2s in a notebook form factor. A friend of mine was going to medical school and, you know, several people of his classmates all bought some of these laptops that were surprisingly inexpensive at the time. I mean, they're like 3,500 bucks, but yeah, they had to like be propped up on these special legs because (laughs) it needed so much air cooling. Around it, but anyway, sorry. That, that so sounds, yeah, it, it's, that brings back memories of the luggable computers, like before yeah. laptops were laptops. Yeah, they're suitcase size. Here's a forty yeah. pound suitcase. Take it with you to your business meeting. And Josh, look, just for you, I have in my hands a, within uh, arm's reach slot one Pentium two. This is a two hundred thirty three megahertz version. I believe this is the mm-hmm. first one. From it's dated twelve fifteen ninety seven from whoever sold this, and uh, and what because it was within arm's reach. Look, there's the. Uh, Slot A. So here we go. There's the slot era for you. Okay, damn it. This oh. isn't arm's reach, but it's 10 feet away. All right. Play the elevator music. Yep. You have to add that in post. Oh, watch. We'll all watch Josh find something in his office. Oh, that was quick. Yeah. Look at those pre-built boards. I see you have I see you have boards that are pre-populated for us. That's Ooh. that's there's the slot A. What what's that one running? What's the processor? I think it's 700 megahertz. It's on the top. Josh, it's on the top. Well, it's dusty. It's on the top of the processor. Feel it. I'm getting just with old, your fingertip. Man. Use your fingertip and just feel the numbers. Yeah, 700 megahertz. Oh, it's a 700, one. okay. Yeah. yeah. 
And this one's a Pentium 3. Oh. I mean, they were still doing slot one. Yeah. For a while. So anyway, they were within almost arm's reach. Well, talking about notebooks, the the notebooks that we can buy today again. Uh, Yes. You can buy these today. Jim, Jim, you can buy these today. It's called eBay.com. You can buy from a retailer new. Well, no. I mean, you don't get a warranty or anything or, you know, even what you bought necessarily when the box comes. But but anyway, so looking at the opposite of uh, that giant Alienware, you've got like the Razor Blade. You know, I don't know if you saw that one, but the screen on that one is fantastic. Oh, yes. Displays in general were a nice upgrade, a nice upgrade across the board. Desktop and laptop displays. I saw a lot of really uh, good ones this year, but like the Razor Blade, some of the MSI notebooks. Um, I, there were some really thin form factors, not max Q, but they're still sporting 2060s in them. So, uh, again, seeing how that's going to work out, uh, in, in real world applications, how, how bad the uh, thermals will get, uh, will be interesting to see. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the 2060, just to kind of cap that story off is one of the demos we saw was like an example streamers, uh, gaming station where they had like their their microphone camera and they had like kind of a simulated environment for them but instead of having two dedicated pcs one to actually play the game on one monitor and the other to actually do the video encoding for like the twitch uh stream upload they had a single 2060 running where the they were offloading the video encode using OBS, like an, an upcoming version of OBS, uh, at the same time they were playing the game without that frame rate drop you get when your CPU gets like starts chugging on OBS. If you ever tried to do that, which I actually have, you get to the point where you cannot play a modern game and stream on the same PC without significant uh, frame drop issues or streaming issues. So... Yeah. That was interesting. And so a, la- a gaming laptop, suddenly that becomes like more interesting for, for the gamer on the go, especially if they like to stream as they play, because then you can kind of do it at the same time. You're not bogging down the CPU. So that was interesting. Yeah. But, hey, speaking of laptops, while we were at Asus, which had a massive multi-suite display this year, uh, one of the suites, and we'll talk about a, a remarkable display here shortly, but one of the suites had gaming. It was very gaming focused, some gaming monitors, tons of gaming laptops, desktops, that sort of thing. But interesting, in the first room, there's this Tough Gaming series. And you've, you've probably heard of the Tough branding from Asus before. They had like, uh, it was like the, the Tough Armor, where they had shielding over the motherboards and that sort of thing. They've sort of redefined what Tough is, and the Tough Gaming is kind of their entry level now. They have Tough Gaming laptops, the FX505, the 705 that are totally AMD powered. So the new Ryzen 3000 series CPUs, and instead of going with the integrated Vega graphics, these have discrete uh, RX graphics in them that that kick in when you start playing a game. But I thought it was interesting, and I believe the price target that JJ mentioned was like 699 was the starting price. Yeah. And and they, were, they were nice laptops, too. They did not yeah. look like, uh, you know, your typical entry-level gamer kind of, you know, they, they were... They Pick were, up at Walmart. Right. I mean, they, were, they weren't they were as thin as some of the high, high-end ones, but they were relatively thin, felt sturdy. The displays looked good. Uh, the keyboard felt good. Uh, nice trackpad. Didn't get a chance to check out the audio or, you know, anything, but... Uh, 
it was it was surprising. You've got all AMD. So if you're if you're Team Red, it's it's a great option for you. And it, right, and even if you're not Team Red, like if, like you said, they're nice laptops. It, you picked it up and looked at it, and it kind of looked like your typical thousand dollar gaming laptop. Yeah. It has a full HD. It was like IPS like technology. I'm guessing not LG, so not not able to say IPS, but that type of display technology with great viewing angles, nice color, uh, and the the feel of them like they had a nice rigidity to them the keyboards felt good trackpad was fine i was like messing around with the trackpad and it it just felt like something that you could that you would expect to be more expensive but there's the cost savings of maybe a maybe asus is passing on the savings of like a ryzen 3000 series part uh and then obviously the rx 560x graphics are not ultra high-end but this is a mainstream gaming laptop and i just thought Hey, here's a great implementation of this stuff to give somebody a really nice product that has a, a little bit lower price point but still feels premium and then is is just targeting kind of mainstream 1080p gaming. Yep. For six ninety nine. And you know, while while some people wouldn't pay six ninety nine for a laptop, you know, if you look at what's out there, you go you search gaming and instantly like everything you see on like Amazon or Newegg is like nine hundred and up. So it's cool to see something that's a little bit more budget friendly. Um, uh, moving on. Oh, this was interesting. The, I, I won't go too crazy into this because I've probably already talked more than I should uh, on Twitch. So if you want to hear about 10 more minutes of us talking about audio, uh, Patrick and I went into uh, great links discussing audio with the EVGA introduction. They got into sound cards. We had seen EVGA teasing something new on Twitter and it was like this corner shot of something with like a lens flare behind it and like like this looks like a video card maybe a, a cooler, I don't know. And well, then it's a they, sound card. Yeah, when they invited us out and they said, you know, we're, we're going to unveil a new product category and all I thought was please don't be gaming chairs, please don't be gaming chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank God! Why was... you didn't want to you don't want to carry that home? No, come on! No, uh, thank God it wasn't gaming chairs, and uh, not only wasn't it gaming chairs, it was something pretty cool. You know, I just thought of something, Jim. Just to interrupt for a moment, the ultimate CES swag, gaming chairs. Just uh, collapse one down, strap it to your back, and then walk around with it for the rest of the day. Yeah. Although I All gotta right. say, after trekking around CES, uh, my my first CES. Uh, Getting one of those little motorized scooters. If so, if a company were to give me a little motorized scooter that I could get around in, uh, that'd be pretty cool. I think I. You know what? Not only that, but you know, I hope the airlines aren't listening to our podcast. But you know, one of those scooters would give you preferential seating on the plane. You'd be one of those passengers who needs a little extra time. No, I, I don't mean like the rascal. I mean like the oh, one you stand oh, on. Like the kid, go the, rascal or go home. No, you get the ones the kids use that like that fold up, but you know have a little bit of a motor in them, and you kick. Like around. the one that uh, Owen Wilson used in uh, Zoolander. Oh God, I don't remember. You haven't seen, seen that? that. Haven't seen okay. that movie in twelve years. Was at the height of like the razor scooter craze, uh, and he, like tricks with his razor razor scooter and like flipping around the base of it and stuff. And anyway. Yeah. You know, what, uh, you know what they anybody could offer that would piss ninety percent of the people off at, at CES? Their own branded roller bag. That when you walk around the show with all of your stuff in the roller bag behind you and cutting people off 
and smashing into ankles. You know what, didn't they put a stop to roller bags? Like the new security, like I think two or three years ago. I don't see any roller bags anymore. Oh, wow. Well, that, s- that would be new to me. I saw some, but, that's but a I don't. smart thing. Yeah, I don't remember if I saw them in the expo center or if it was just walking yeah. around between the casinos. I feel like it's all just like shoulder bags and stuff now. Anyway, back to EVGA, back yeah. to sound cards. And this is, I, I love it at the same time. I'm like worried that they're not going to get a lot of traction necessarily at this price. This is a premium product. So you look at it from, from two different sides and there's another product we're going to be talking about shortly. That's the same argument. It's from the audiophile side, it's a bargain. And for the consumer side, wow, this is really expensive. So it's $249. Did we say the name? It is the EVGA new sound or new audio. Sorry. New new audio. Sound card, NU. yes. NU, new audio. It's a discrete PCI Express sound card. Sound card. It's PCI Express, yes. Actually, technically, internally, it's a USB device that's bridged to PCI Express. Oh, okay. But uh, it's... It it's doesn't a, do any, like, 3DU processing. No, no, it's no. just pure audio. It's pure two-channel audio. And, one of the, and I was loving it, and I was talking to uh, the founder, who was a, a big audiophile himself and has like a vintage system with like literal theater 1930s theater speakers in his listening room with an all tube set up and just just wonderful to talk to him and to learn about his interest in audio and how this is translated into a new product category for them but this is uh there's a company called audio note in the uk and they make high-end audio stuff where they're entry level, you know, and if you read like audio file magazines and things, or you go to any of these websites that sell the products, you know that like a, a, a deal on an integrated amplifier from a lot of companies is like two grand. And then you're going to be paying two to $4,000 for a pair of bookshelf speakers. But they had essentially an entry level system for, for them on display. And it was literally just being driven by a PC just a built PC in an EVGA case running all EVGA stuff, including the sound card. And the sound was phenomenal, of course. And it was like walking into a suite at like an audio show, the way that it was kind of set up. And when you sat in the sweet spot and like the nice stereo imaging and stuff, it reminds me of why positional audio, like the 3D DSP stuff, is it makes such a huge difference when somebody enables it because very often if you're using motherboard audio or a, a less expensive sound card, it, it, the sound is so narrow and flat in stereo that you pretty much have to enable some sort of spatial effect for it to sound really wide and really engaging. So this thing, and I did some headphone demos and listened to some of the speakers, and it's, it's, it's really, really good. It sounds like a component. Like you'd... I, like you'd almost expect there to be a dedicated uh, DAC under the table and it was just coming out of the back of the sound card. So, I mean, you can read the review or not the review, the preview on the site, the the little news post that I wrote up that shows some of the different uh, pictures they, they have of like internal components and things like the really fancy capacitors and uh, power regulation and stuff. And it uses, it uses a high end DAC. It's an AKM, AK 4493, and high-end op amps and all that good stuff. So if you're interested in like lossless music or just really, really high quality, 
and the numbers, like I, I wonder if these numbers are on their site somewhere, but they were showing those audio precision measurements that you'd see in like a stereo five magazine. They took of this thing on the output and just crazy, like signals to noise ratio of over 120 with very, very low distortion, well beyond the audible spectrum, like minus 130 dB, virtually no intermodulation distortion, just incredible numbers for, for even a, 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 a standalone DAC coming out of a sound card. So at that point, I'm thinking 250 is a bargain. But for the average customer pricing out a build, this is a very, very high-end uh, option. It's focused. Yes. So for somebody like me, they've found their market. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm weird. I admit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I face that. And they mentioned, too, that this is an area, because this is such a passion for the founder and, and for lots of the people in the company, uh, this is just the start of what they want to bring. They want to focus on audio. So this is something that, that uh, is an introduction to a new area for yeah. them. Which and is they could very well, they could come out with a lower cost version. They could come out with a USB version. I mean, internally this already is USB. So that I'm sure we'll see down the road. It's just, it's interesting. Like VGA, they, they weren't like a pioneer in like the add in board market, but when they came in, they started making compelling stuff. EVGA is one of those sort of go-to brands for, for graphics cards and motherboards and things. So it's, it's interesting, interesting to see them get into sound, but moving on, Jim, you met with uh, rivet networks, I believe. Yeah. The killer networking people. Mm-hmm. And they have, I know in the past uh, there, we've talked about kind of like the, uh, obviously there's 10 gigabit, but then on copper, you can go to like five, two and a half, yeah, so there's it depends on the, on the the controller that you're using, uh, but there's there's ten, and then there's controllers that can negotiate at two point five and five as well as ten, and sometimes just to two point five, and that's what we've got here. You know, uh, the Killer brand has been around since the early two thousands. It was initially an independent company that released a discrete card, uh, network card, that uh, you know had mixed reviews. Uh, some people said it didn't do anything. Some people said it, and it had its own heat sink. Yes. And, and the, but the point was offload your network processing so that you can ensure that your computer's CPU can, is dedicated to the game. So you're not wasting any processing on your networking. And then that evolved. And this made sense because this was, you know, a time where CPUs were single core. Yeah. And. Dual core was just coming out in what two thousand five two thousand six, and so they later on uh, got acquired by Qualcomm, and they had some product releases with them, and they started to focus more on the software side. There's still hardware solutions, obviously, but more about software and doing like QoS, but game gaming focused QoS, making sure that the priority is is all for your game packets, and then. But they've been at Gigabit. They've been at Gigabit, and they've had wireless products as well. And their wireless products actually use Intel uh, hardware now. So it's not the uh, the old days where it's like, oh, you have to choose between Intel and one of these others. It's, you know, you get killer software with Intel hardware. Uh, but this new new processor coming out, which is a, it's a wired uh, NIC, wired Ethernet. I'm sorry. I'm being accosted by a cat here. Get, get out of there. Just, just go. 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 Leave. Leave, kitty. God. Um, I feel, I feel like I'm missing out because I'm the only one who doesn't have a cat. I will bring Kitty's you one. being a dildo. I've got a couple extras. I'll get you one. Um, I don't think they'd play nice with my dogs, but okay, maybe. 
Yeah, they'll hold their it's, own. My son, my son loved cats. My, I, we go to my mom's house, and he he's, he can't get enough. But like this wouldn't work in my house, I don't mm-hmm. think. Well, anyway, uh, so they've got this new line. It's the, the they had the Killer E twenty five hundred, which was the gigabit product. They've launched uh, at CES the Killer E three thousand, and it's a two point five gigabit chip. And why two point five? And the reason is, well, first of all, the price is basically the same as gigabit. Implementing this into motherboards and stuff. This this isn't something you'd buy as a discrete yeah. add-on. You'd get it as part of your motherboard, and they're partnering with a company's laptops and motherboard manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And the pricing is about the same as Gigabit. And the thing is, Gigabit has been the bottleneck now for several years. It used to be the you know when they when Gigabit came into the market in the early two thousands and the enterprise, and then moved into the home. It was the holy grail. It was amazing. Now it's the slowest interface in your computer, probably compared to Thunderbolt and USB three. Well, even some wireless solutions are faster. And than yes, now we have wireless AX coming out, aka Wi Fi 6. And yeah. that, in many cases, can negotiate real world speeds higher than a gigabit. So I now, mean, let's, admit, let's face it uh, 100 megabytes a second on your home network isn't really that sexy anymore. Yeah. And you're like, I can do my, the, the hard drive in my NAS can do more than this. Right. And and so the thought was, well, 10 gig is coming. The prices are coming down on 10 gig. And we talked to companies like Aquantia, and they've got solutions there. But for most people, it's still more than they want to spend. So 2.5 is a nice middle point where you're not you're talking you're talking basically the same price uh, to the manufacturer and therefore to the consumer, uh, and you get more than double the speed, and it just works. It works with cat because the other, the other aspect too is that 10 gig, uh, you need cat six. It'll work on cat five at very short distances with high cables, high quality cables, but y- you'd need to upgrade your cables to really ensure good 10 gig performance at 2.5. It works with cat five E. Uh, so your existing cables work, your, uh, devices, it, it'll auto negotiate down to a gigabit. If you ha- don't, if you have legacy devices as well, so you don't have to worry about compatibility. And it makes sure that your connection is not the bottleneck. And they're not the only ones doing this. This is just one implementation. But the key is they're introducing it alongside their software suite, uh, which has all kinds of stuff like it will detect when a game runs and will automatically disable Windows services that aren't essential. You can configure that, of course, to, to leave certain things running if you want. But it's basically going to run seamlessly in the background, automatically detect your game, automatically configure your system to ensure while while you're playing that you get the best performance, that there's no processes kicking up, stealing CPU cycles, making sure that your game network traffic is is high priority. Um, and they're introducing something new this year too called Killer Intelligence Engine, which kind of has more consumer applications than just gamers where it's going to, because networking is hard for general consumers to understand. Why is it working? Why, is it, why aren't my speeds fast? And what this is going to do is scan your network, try to determine your router, try to determine the signal strength and positions and all that, and detect what's wrong and suggest how to fix it. Like you don't have this setting turned on or you your Wi-Fi router is just not powerful enough. And it'll tell you in plain language what the problem is. And if it, if it can fix it itself, it will. And if it can't, it'll tell you, hey, here's the problem, fix it. So a lot of really unique stuff going on there that is accessible to consumers, not tied up in some uh, obscure net uh, router or switch firmware. And so, you know, it, we're going to have to get a chance to take a look and see how this works in practice. Uh, notebooks with it will be shipping soon. And uh, if, if you have a choice, if you're going to buy a notebook and you've got a choice between say an Intel gigabit NIC or a killer E3000, there's no, there's really no reason not to go with the killer or, you know, any other manufacturer that's going to be offering that higher, 
higher speed. Don't yeah. don't don't let yourself be bottlenecked. Uh, and if you do game, it's you know the, the features probably are going to come in handy for you. After well, having not, go ahead, Josh. Well, it's it's a nice uh, alternative to the uh, what a Quantia mm-hmm. 10G part that uh, some motherboard guys are are implementing, like the uh, what the Tai Chi X470 Ultimate. Um, Asus that's got to have some there too. It's got some serious cooling on that chip. Yeah. Hmm. So this is a nice. What do you call that when you trade two things off? Compromise. A trade-off. Compromise. Well, oh, compromise. Yeah. I know, I'm not familiar compromise. with that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can look at your audio stack, and yes, you do not compromise. That's true. Uh, I haven't looked at network equipment in a few months, personally. So, is 2. there are there switches still not common out there? Yeah, the okay. switches are not common. I mean, it's not common. You can get 10G stuff, and yeah. it's pricey. You can get an eight-port switch for. 500 bucks i think they've come down like i was just looking at i think either netgear or somebody had one for like a couple hundred bucks on newegg well yeah i mean they originally were 1500 to 2000 bucks for like eight ports and now they've gone down you know into under a thousand bucks but they're still not i mean we could i could do a quick search here but they're they're not common the 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 key though is um a lot of manufacturers are rolling out this year in the first half of this right. year okay. switches with the 2.5 because it is okay. the, it's basically the same cost as gigabit so they're going to be rolling those out you you have lots of options for switches where you it's the whole switch let's say it's a 16 port switch or something it's not all not every port is is greater than gigabit but you get one or two that are multi gig Okay, and then that's the point. Is you plug in your high bandwidth devices into those, they can negotiate back and forth to the router at the faster speed, and then your legacy gigabit devices are just in the chain as well, running at their speed. So there are options. Plus, routers themselves are coming out with, like we looked at uh, the Nighthawk. I think it was uh, late last okay. year. That has a ten gig, uh, a, a multi gig, so it can do ten, five, and two point five uh, built gotcha. into okay. it. So, so this is it's going to get multi gig into more devices and. So all the a lot of the 10 gig stuff is going to be backwards compatible, and then there's going to be stuff coming out. So more of a con a concurrent thing where yeah. as this 3000 hits the market, then all of these 2.5 devices, whether like networking devices, routers, are going to be showing up at the same time. That's the plan, and that's just again, it's a okay. price, it's a pricing thing. It's that two point because 10 gig's been around for several years now. It's that yeah. 2.5 in particular. The pricing has gotten almost a parity with gigabit, and that's what's causing this shift. Interesting. So, like yeah, the budget I, that, routers of 2019 with 2.5. That's the that's the plan. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I'm looking on Amazon. I mean, they've got like uh, a QNAP has a uh, eight port shared 10 gigabit for 589. Asus has a two port 10 G and eight port gig E for 250. So yeah, it's it's getting down there, but it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. But you know what is there yet? What is there? Uh, Asus has astonished us with a 32-inch monitor. This is their ProArt PA32UCX. It's a 4K HDR monitor, and okay, I know, with 4K HDR, it's everywhere. And even monitors with with full array local dimming to meet that, that spec, like the HDR1000 has much tighter... Uh, requirements for like low black levels contrast ratio overall brightness all that sort of thing this monitor 
has 1,000 individual lighting zones behind the panel. That's and it's a lot. 30, it's 32 inches. I haven't done the math. That's a lot of uh, those little micro LEDs. That's a lot of local dimming. Yeah. It's a lot of local dimming per square inch. And, uh, and it's like two benefits to this at the same time. You have tiny LED lights behind the display. And the first example I could think of was, if you remember, I think it was two years ago, Sony introduced the Z9 TV. And the Z9, maybe it was three years ago now, it was a TV with just an astonishing number of local dimming zones that was essentially simultaneously producing a high-resolution image on the LCD and a lower-resolution image of the same thing behind it using a micro-LED panel. And so it was following along with the action and creating an incredible effect of just lighting exactly where it needed to light instead of, you know, TVs that have like, you know, 100 zones even or 200 zones where you have bigger squares behind the screen on like a 65 or 75-inch TV. And we were impressed just a, you know, a year or two ago by TVs that had a couple hundred zones. And this thing just takes it all the way up to a thousand, which is crazy. I mean, we saw one monitor that was 512, which was so far and above the 384 that we'd seen before with a gaming monitor. And then to walk into the next room and see this thousand zone, it's, it's hard to describe what it actually looks like in person because it has the capability of, of peak brightness that is, that is so high but at the same time controlling black levels perfectly. And it's it doesn't have the same look as OLED. I I have an OLED TV. Uh, it's a couple years old. And it it's a different look than an emissive display. There's just something about that. And I will admit, like, LCDs do uh, gradation better. Like, they, they do gray better. Like, the as you go down in brightness there is so much greater control to an lcd panel like this where you see like the smooth transition from black to gray and other colors where with oled you get to a certain threshold where it pretty much just has to shut off uh it can't do the really dark grays as, as well but anyway i there, Can you there imagine the controller required to do all of that work I mean, and the amount of, of yeah, and the amount of tuning that has to be done in software to get it all to work together seamlessly there's obviously a lot, of, a lot of engineering went into this i'm sure that's but yeah. it's probably going to affect the final price which uh they were not displaying and i can imagine since this is especially since it's being is marketed as a professional's monitor like this is a monitor for people creating hdr content that sort of thing it's not going to be inexpensive but i mean i don't really care what goes into it i just want it i want one of these monitors i want a thousand zone backlights uh the sound, I, the sound that you made when we walked into that room and stood in front of this display, is we'd have to, know, we'd have to mark this as end, as not safe for work or explicit on iTunes if I were to recreate. Oh, it, it was when, when I it yeah, was similar, it was more sensual than that, Josh. It was yeah. more like oh. it was more more animalistic. Uh-huh. I guess. Yeah. I, when I told JJ I could stand here and just look at this monitor for the next half hour, and he kind of chuckled like I, I wasn't yeah. joking. I was literally I needed some time. I wasn't ready to leave just yet. It's, it was the, pretty good. One of the things that I, I love, I love this trend of not worrying about making stuff like razor thin and getting back into rear lighting, like back lighting behind the screen instead of edge lighting. Edge lighting, it doesn't matter how nicely it's implemented. You're going to have 
some uniformity issues from panel to panel and there's hot corners to deal with whichever whichever side has the like the more intense lighting zone and like some of the newer samsung tvs of the last couple of years they've only had lighting along the bottom shining up and then you have like hot like zones on the bottom and it's just there's a reason that when i was shopping for a television i ended up getting myself banned from best buy <laughs> Uh, because you just kept returning everything. Yes, yes. Yeah. Because nothing was good enough. Like there's a hot corner. There's another hot corner, and then this this top. And I I finally just I I got I got banned. But you know, uh, so I stuck with what my last purchase. I had no choice but to to keep it. Uh, but I'm never happy, and I was actually happy with this display. So it was fun to see. And even though I will never buy one because I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be like six or $7,000. I would, I would bet it's 4,500 to $5,000. Okay. I think that's, that's, that changes everything. The the marketing team at at, uh, Josh tech (laughs) has swayed me. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that I got to see at uh, digital experience and for people who don't know, like CES, uh, one of the nights before the official show starts there, there's a very, very densely packed, ballroom with with booths galore and some pretty tasty snacks as well but uh hyperx was there and i tried these on there and then jim you got some quality time with hyperx yourself after i you know sneaked out early and got on a plane but uh what were your impressions of the hyperx uh accessories we saw microphones and uh headsets there are a couple different models of this cloud orbit series yeah so yeah, I got a chance to go up to their their suite where they were demoing everything, and the the headset that they're announcing is interesting because it's as you alluded to, sort of with the the EVGA new audio card. Uh, this is something that's going to touch both the audiophile and gamer markets. It's a it's a gamer headset, so it's got the, like the microphone and the 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 features and the software for gaming stuff, but it's built with Odyssey magnet planner magnetic drivers. 100 millimeter Odyssey. Is it Odyssey? Is that the pronunciation? I've heard Odyssey. I've heard Odyssey. I've heard Odyssey. Yeah. I, re- I think they the company themselves said Odyssey. Okay. But I'm so not 100% sure. They're, they're a high end audiophile grade headphone manufacturer. And so they're working with HyperX on this and they're using their drivers. And so it's uh, planar magnetic technology and uh, it sounds really good uh, in standard stereo mode. But that's the that's the HyperX Cloud Orbit. They also have a Cloud Orbit S, which is using technology from a company called Waves NX that does it uses head tracking to place statically place audio sources or outputs in a fixed position. So the point here is you are listening to a multi-channel audio track or even a stereo track. You're listening to a track that has channels. And you push a, you center your head and push a button. And then using head tracking, it places those channels in fixed positions around you. And it's using its processing to simulate that surround effect. And once that button is pushed and those channels are placed, as you move, it's not positional. So if you walk across the room, it doesn't work, but just turning your head, it keeps the channel relatively placed where it is to your head. So it sounds as if you were literally turning your head in a room with discrete speakers. And it's kind of weird. It's really effective. Like it sounded really incredible. We were listening to, I had a stereo audio track. So it sounded like there were two stereo speakers in front of me. And then I demoed uh, a game that had a multi-channel audio track and it sounded like a surround sound. And it kind of creates a more realistic 
experience. It was hard. It, the, the showroom was a little noisy, so it was really hard to get a good, good experience or good uh, demo of it. But it, it kind of, it gives you this sort of feeling like you're not really he- with headphones. Like you are truly sitting in a room with a discrete multi-channel audio setup around you with speakers. It's actually, yeah, it's even more positional than that. That's the, the kind of weird thing. And I, the, the brief demo I had of it, it, like in a room, there's enough like reflected sound that it's never as positional. Like you have to be in a very specific spot to get that level of directionality from speakers. Yeah. Like near field monitors can do it, but that, it was kind of eerie because once they centered my head and hit the button and I started turning my head around it, I was losing the sound. Like was, the sound that was right in front of me became well off of my, my left and my right ears as I moved around. And, uh, it's interesting. Like it worked better than I was expecting it to. Like this is essentially, uh, software working with hardware. There are like accelerometers in the headset. Yeah that are measuring motion the same way that your phone would. Yep. And it's, it's a millisecond polling rate. So it's very, yeah. very responsive. Yes. It was, it was very quick. Yeah. It's it, as soon as I turned my head, I could hear this. I was leaving the sound behind. Yeah. So it was, I don't know. It's like taking the sort of simulated surround from headphones kind of to another level, but at the same time, I just, I wonder what the practical application of it is. Right. Like as a technology, it's working. The, yeah. The point is like, does this bring anything that someone would actually use beyond just trying it out the first time? So like I said, I, I, we, we, we both demoed it in noisy environments. I'd like to yeah. get it home. And, and they said they're, yeah, yeah. they're going to try and to set us up with some review units so we can try. And it what's interesting us. too, and I'll add as a footnote is the cloud orbit is actually a different product from the cloud orbit S the S is the one that has this technology. And if you're interested in the technology and whatever applications it might have, as far as uh, games and that sort of thing, it's only 30 bucks. Like you're talking about a a $30 difference in the MSRP between the one with and the one without. Yeah. The one without is two 99. The one with is three 29. And, and, and you know, before you say that that is outrageous, that's $300 for a gaming headset, understand that this is the same driver that's in the Odyssey or Odyssey Odyssey. Mobius, Odyssey, Mobius headphone, which is a 100 millimeter planar magnetic driver. And that is a $399 pair of headphones. So you HyperX teaming up with them, they're using the same drivers. It's a little bit different, you know, packaging. It's the, the HyperX headset, but it's still a premium headset. And I will say, like HyperX, the last couple of headsets I've had in from them, these are really nice. They're getting better and better. And even with their condition, their conventional drivers, flatter, better musical production, uh, you know, solid bass response, but not overpowering, like very good just for music, two-channel music listening. And then to move up to these drivers, you're, it's kind of like getting uh, a discount on the Mobius when mm-hmm. you get this. So it's like, okay, well, you can get into these uh, Odyssey planar magnetic headphones for $100 less than you can with Odyssey. And it's packages a gaming headset and you get a microphone and you can use it with your computer and it's, you can hook it up two different ways. There's like a USB connection. There's a 3.5 millimeter connection. So, so, so Odyssey gets to sell the headphones essentially, but not have to support them. Hey, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Win, win. 
Cool. Yep. And then real quick, the other, uh, they, they had a couple of announcements, but the other key one here is the HyperX Quadcast microphone. This is their first dedicated, uh, desktop or not, you know, it's like, a, it's not a, not a built-in microphone. It's a USB mic, uh, built for streamers. It's got a unique design. It's got four polar, it's uh, red. it's red. It is. And I, I, I asked about that too. Unfortunately, that's not RGB. It's just red. So you, it's, that would, I, well, Gen, Gen 2, Gen 2 yes, will be RGB. Gen 2, you can choose faith. the color. But it's a red and black design. It's pretty slick for what it is. It's got a nice shock mount that comes with it. Um, selectable polar Which patterns. Which is nice, yeah. yeah. Especially for the price point to include the shock mount. Yep. And kind of goes against like the blue microphones in the same price range. Yeah, the price range on this is 139 launching in the yeah. second quarter. Uh, it's got a 3.5mm uh, output for live uh, monitoring so you can check your levels and um, mm-hmm. and also output sound through your computer so you can have all the audio coming through there if you want. Yeah. Um, Nice, nice microphone. It's got, it's got a touch to mute on the top and it indicates mute status by turning the light off. So it's real easy to see whether the hey, microphone like, is on that, or not. I kind of get the red at that point thing. It's like the on air light. Yeah. Like your microphone on your desk is your on air light. Like it's red. We're, yep. we're broadcasting right now. So that's kind of cool. And then like you, like, did you mention the, the different patterns you can actually select for yeah. different, uh, yeah. It's got, it's got so, omni. It's got bidirectional. Um, I can't remember the, all of them, but basically it's it's whether you can do straight in front, all around, side to side, and one other. I don't remember. But choices for how you're using it, whether you want it to be directional or not. So, yeah. I mean, plus it, it looks cool on a desk. Yeah, it's a nice look. It's got a nice sturdy stand. Uh, it's a real hefty kind of weight to it. It's it's. Uh, I didn't get a chance to, like, grab it. I saw it there, and I was, like, instantly went for the headphones. So I didn't even, I didn't even play with it at all. So yeah. good, good heft to it, so. Yeah, we didn't. Josh, you're just you're miss. There's so many cues here, and you're just missing all of them. I can't do it. You know, big old. We're talking about hefts. We're talking about uh, grasping things that are girthy. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm looking at my mono price, and I'm I'm pretty happy with it. It doesn't have any RGBs, and uh, you know, what can you do? I I guess you know. Nothing. Just carry on. I sound I sound terrible no matter what I'm on. You know, I think you sound delightful, Josh. Well, thank you. Shall, right. shall we move on to the Faison stuff? Let's, let's talk about Faison. And this is cool. Um, it was actually uh, legit reviews who had good photos. Uh, I was reading about this on Computer Base when I wrote up this news post this morning. But this is the PS5016-E16, which I hope is not a a final product name for anything. But it is a brand new controller, part of a prototype device they were showing at CES. And... The the story is this is PCI Gen 4 NVMe. And even with this early device and the way they had to connect it, obviously there's no PCI Gen 4 desktop yet. And the desktop system they had was a conventional motherboards. So they were using this uh, like development platform type thing. It was what is this Gen 4 host add-in card from PLDA. So it uses PCI 3 by 16 upstream to pcie four by eight downstream so it like converts it down and the results they were showing with just crystal disc mark were well over their stated uh four gigabyte per second reads and four point one like four forty one hundred uh writes just tremendous speeds obviously not like double the speed of gen three or anything, but uh, even so, this early prototype is getting well over 4,000. 
Yeah, so I mean, you know, Faison is is a company that they impressed with one of their first generation products that it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad either. And so, you know, like my digital SSD took it, a bunch of other guys did, and you know, they tuned the firmware and and you know, it, it was a solid controller. And then you had their second generation one with the like BPX Pro, uh, mm-hmm. which you know was, was three point four gigabytes per second uh, reads and three point one gigs uh, writes when you you know have all eight channels with you know fast 3d nand in there and we can see that uh, with this design they've obviously improved some clocks and throughput and whatnot that they're achieving over four gigabyte per second so that's a nice little jump and for what is probably going to be not exactly a budget part but it's not like samsung 970 pro right yeah like so their Prices. pedigree has been the like good mainstream solution. They're not like you said. It's not like budget. It's not like it's low performing, but it it's affordable stuff that's actually very solid. This is like you, you mentioned eight channels. This is an eight channel controller. This has kind of a custom solution. It's it's a quad core that uses two ARM cores and then two of their own proprietary uh, processor cores. So. Uh, very interesting to see. And it just like one of the things I thought of instantly when I thought about PCI Express 4 is storage. Because maybe you don't need that for graphics right now or for the well, time hell, that's, being. That's what, all the, that's what all the server people are, are waiting for is PCI 4.0 to address all of the storage issues that they have. Because that's constantly a, bed, uh, uh, a bottleneck. I mean, they've got all these, you know, SSD um drives attached to a backplane that in theory could could be you know many 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 gigabytes per second but you're limited with your controllers and so you know the big iron guys who really need that kind of throughput they're chopping at the bit for pcie 4.0 yes and so am i but let's move on uh, we visited with be quiet while we were at ces we went up to their suite and be quiet if you're not really familiar with them, they are a German company. They're like the number one brand over there. Uh, they they make cases, they make coolers, they make power supplies, and they are very very black. Like everything is black, and it's very sleek looking, very high end, very German. And but right off the bat, we walk into the suite, and they've got a, a very white case on display. So we saw the dark base. Uh, 700 white edition which is a limited edition and this, this is limited to 3,000 units it, it's more of like a, a kind of a landmark of you know it was celebrating their their history but also kind of what they could do with white and they were very proud of this and and for good reason because like they were saying it's not easy to do white with different materials they're doing plastic and metal and exactly matching the shade of white between the two of them which if you ask apple is not easy to do we remember back to the first white iPhones and all the problems there, but they did it, and then they they showed it all off with a pure, like a clear tempered glass side panel, which which looks very fresh. Like a lot of cases are always have like the there's a tinted kind of look to most tempered glass. That this it was very very refreshing looking, and they had some what I would describe as tasteful RGB yes. Uh, lighting. Yes, just, which, just which was act- which was a rarity this week. Yes. Actually, yeah, uh, tasteful. You mean not RGB? Yes, tasteful RGB was was the the rarity or the yeah. I was uh, gonna say because RGB is everywhere, but 
This was just very, 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 you know, and I think it was surprising anyway. If you follow like uh, enclosures and stuff and for, you know, I've been living in that world for the last five years. But uh, to see Be Quiet with RGB was surprising enough. And then to see a white case was interesting. But they didn't have just a, a case to show. And that is an interesting case. I will just mention one more thing about it before I move on is that it is a and you can get the black version, too. But that case design is modular. You can make it inverted if you want to. You can flip it around. You can put the rear side panel on the front, the front side panel on the rear, and you can do a lot with the case. So it was interesting. But they also had uh, some different coolers and fans on display. And you can you can look at the article on the website. But the the interesting thing, besides white fans that are pure white, like all white plastic to go with your white cases, is a, the Dark Rock Slim cooler, which is their answer to... Uh, anybody who has the like they want the efficiency of of a powerful air cooling solution the simplicity of air over liquid but do not want to deal with uh memory compatibility problems and that fan overhang you get with the really big coolers so this is this is a cooler that can still do i believe it's 180 watts was it 180 or 160 i want to say let me pull it up here i want to say it was higher um uh, so I pull it up, but it, it's a very slim cooler given its uh, heat dissipation yeah. capabilities. So it is an interesting option and, and you can check out the site for, for the pictures that we took and the little, uh, there's a, a video of us talking to be quiet as well. Um, but let's see, actually, I think that pretty much wraps up news. Uh, there's one other Jim, thing. What? One other Josh, thing. Josh, yes. NVIDIA and FreeSync. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. How could I leave that off? I don't know. Okay, go ahead, Josh. Okay, so you know what? I think uh, the G-Sync tax is real, and I believe that it has had a negative effect on the amount of monitors that have been sold under that brand. And I think AMD... Even though they aren't selling a whole huge amount of cards, there are so many free sync monitors out there, and they're kind of ubiquitous. Is that the correct usage? But I mean, they're just they're just everywhere, and they're I mean, yes, at all kinds of price means. points, and yes. they're at really good price points as compared to G Sync. And I think that finally, Nvidia realizes, like you know, we have developed a lot of time, a lot of software, a lot of money in getting G Sync, and we just don't sell many stuff, much stuff because the prices, you know, until recently have, have kind of been nuts. And I think that uh, this is a great move by them. It'll make their uh, cards a lot more attractive because people can now pair an inexpensive free sync monitor with an NVIDIA card. And this is fantastic for consumers. And it's something that I think NVIDIA has lost sight of. I mean, sure, having G-Sync was good. It was a product and a philosophy that they developed really well. And and you could argue that they did it the right way. They did it their way that it had a very controlled environment and the results are, are, are very good. I mean, very consistent with monitor to monitor. You're not going to have really a bad G-Sync monitor. You're going to have a bad panel, like a TN panel can be crappy, but your experience on that panel is going to be G-Sync and it's going to be good because it uses that G-Sync module. It's it's 
incredibly low input latency. I mean, the best really in, in the business and, uh, all the uh, the stuff that they actually do to you know each image and, and how they control that, it just works. It's fantastic, and there are real good reasons to get a G Sync monitor if you've got an Nvidia card if you want the best um, experience. However, you can get ninety percent of that best experience with FreeSync, and they finally are supporting that. Only twelve monitors, Mo- many of those are right. like last generation yeah well you know maybe not you know discontinued as well but they're starting that up and not only that but on the 15th apparently there's a way that you can kind of override um you know the g-sync compatible and just use any kind of free sync async monitor and uh see how your results are some of your results may be bad and you'll want to turn that off but you may have the option it definitely depends on the actual monitor, it's case by case, and there's a reason that they've only, because you're talking about the G-Sync compatible, it's sort of, it's not really like a certification program, but it's just something that they've been doing, they've been testing, and they've released this list of 12 monitors so far out of 400 plus that they've tested, and we got to see some of the other monitors and kind of side by side, and obviously this was at NVIDIA, so, you know, the it's in their interest to to show the the fruit of their efforts, I guess you could say, as far as what their G-Sync compatible stuff is. But it's taking monitors you can just go out and buy that, like you said, some of these have been on the market for a little while. Put them through different uh, tests and things. Part of it is the range, the actual uh, variable refresh range. And we've seen a ton of monitors that are FreeSync that have a extremely limited range. You know, like 45 to 60? Yeah. So yeah, they're they're terrible. looking for a bigger ratio with the range, so you can go down a little bit farther. They're looking for color. They're looking for like the actual, uh, the panel performance, like uh, just various things, and giving them the certification. But it, like you said, it's nice to see that without any kind of driver hack or anything, you can use a FreeSync monitor a variable refresh monitor that's on the market without having to buy the G-Sync monitor. And I'm not uh, in the camp that thinks that G-Sync is like a a myth, like it's just a marketing term, because obviously there's more to it. There's a reason there's hardware. There's a reason that... Yeah, that's a serious FPGA that powers the G-Sync. Yeah, I mean... There's a huge software component behind it. I, I would love it if every monitor came out and could just go down to like one hertz and all the way up to like 144 but this don't and there's a lot that goes into the timing of a panel like you can't just take a, a a monitor that essentially is a 60 hertz monitor that can go down to like 48 and we've seen this a lot with tvs like going back to a, a like the a tcon that might exist for a, a panel that is like a, a traditional 60 hertz panel that has like a, a film mode like a, a a television that can go down to 48 because you know a movie is shot at 24 frames a second so to have an actual proper 24 fps or 24 hertz experience you have to have a monitor that's like 48 capable because then it does like uh, it does frame doubling to get it up to 48 three two pull down sucks yeah three two three two pull down sucks so that was one of those things when I was shopping for TVs over the last few years. You always look for a TV that can natively go down to 48. 
These are LCD TVs. And but the the solution there was when the 128 hertz or the 120, 120. hertz TVs came out, you're just repeating each of the 24 frames five times to get to 120. If I'm doing my math right, yeah, some you're, multiple. You're correct. Yeah, because 120 but, is is one of those magic numbers when it comes to video. Now, 24, would, 30, 60. Yeah. Wouldn't it yeah. be nice if you could just say, well, the way to make my game smoother is just to increase its frame rate. I'll just increase the performance of the game, and then it will always be smooth. But that's the problem, especially once yeah. you go up to higher resolutions. You need, uh, if you have a monitor that can match the output of you know, your graphics card, then you get a smooth experience. And you don't have tearing, and you don't have... Um, yeah. The other issues. That now we're getting into, but, you know, the philosophy of that. But anyway, yeah, the, the, yeah. it's nice that we have the option now. Or, and sorry, I think we should clarify um, with this program. This is not something that NVIDIA is working with display manufacturers to certify, as you alluded to, Sebastian. The, what they how they describe this to us and uh, talking to display manufacturers at the show, too, they concurred that they didn't know this was happening. Uh, NVIDIA <laughs> went out and bought these displays, these free sync or adaptive sync displays did their own internal, internal testing, which they have not revealed the methodology of, um, and then approved them or not. And as you said that out of the, they claim to have tested 400. They said only 12 of those 400 that they tested meet the compatible qualification as of today. And if you have one of those and you plug it into your NVIDIA, uh, card, uh, just like when you enable uh, G-Sync through the control panel now with a G-Sync monitor, it'll say and uh, G-Sync compatible detected, and it'll turn it on automatically. And then if you don't have one that's qualified, you can override it and then see how it works and judge for yourself whether you want to keep it enabled. But they're, and maybe they'll get there, but as of now, they're not working with the manufacturers. Uh, speaking to many manufacturers, I don't, I don't necessarily want to name, but uh, we talk, I, th- I think I talked to four or five of them, they didn't know what the qualifications were. They didn't know what the process was. They weren't getting any answers. So as of right now, this is something NVIDIA is doing internally and then sharing out to their customers. And uh, hopefully, if they if they don't go to an official relationship with the manufacturers, it will at least drive them the, on their own to increase quality to meet what appears to be the requirements uh, so that their products can then be marketed to both to customers using both GPU uh, types. Yeah, this is, you know, kind of the issue that FreeSync originally had is there's a huge swath of, of quality issues that, that a lot of, you know, even though they're FreeSync branded monitors, they're pretty crappy. And FreeSync 2 kind of tightened a bunch of things down. So I think this will, this will also improve what we have going on, which is awesome. Well, we could go on and on about CES and our feelings about CES endlessly. Um, do you, either of you have any kind of closing? I know it's, I it's kind of passe, but like getting, final thoughts, favorite, Friday. My favorite leg, moments. My legs hurt. <laughs> my legs hurt so bad. You know what? Shin splints are real, Jim. Yeah, and, no, I think the biggest surprise was the, the G-Sync battle and giving consumers the option to turn on that functionality if you've got a free sync monitor hmm. that's that was just bigger than Vegas Seven, bigger than okay well it was the most unexpected and the something that will probably affect the most people in the short term interesting all right well let's see 
do we want to do picks of the week? Do you have something to share, Josh, Jim? I do. Okay. Who's first? You go, Josh. Go. Go. Okay. Uh, so this one is the, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about the Dell Alienware version. This is the 34-inch Acer Predator Gaming X34 PBMIPHZX. Don't you love the naming? Oh, I know. That it's a, a G-Sync monitor. It's got the G-Sync in there. you got to do display port to be able to get it up to 120 hertz, which is a magic number. I've got that same panel in this Alienware in front of me. It's for 750 bucks, And that's just dirt cheap getting to be for the quality of monitor, the speed, the build, G-Sync compatibility. Um, not compatibility, but it's it's a G Sync monitor. And is so, this like an ultra wide or is it like a conventional? Yeah, it's the it's the twenty one to nine. Okay, ultra wide or yeah, whatever they call it now. You know what? Ultra racing, ultra wide racing games look really nice on those ultra. They wide they games. do, and one hundred and twenty hertz is nice, and G Sync is nice. Everything is nice about these, and yeah, the panels are are good. Uh, these are well reviewed. Um, the design is nice and industrial, and it looks pretty. So, yeah, if you really want a G-Sync widescreen, 34-inch, 1440, what, 3440 by 1440, it's – I've been enjoying mine immensely. Almost too much, it sounds like. Almost. All right. Uh, Your hands are not where I can see them, Josh. Oh, okay. All right. Most of that content doesn't, you know, come out (laughs) in 2009, so (laughs) – all right, Jim, what do you have a pick for us? Yeah, so this is uh, may not apply to everybody. It's if you've got a MacBook Pro or a MacBook, I guess, because uh, like a lot of people uh, are Ken, who uh, obviously was with us, uh, used to work here, and uh, and I, you know, we have desktop PCs, we have MacBooks as well. And wait a minute, this- wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we got rid of Ken, and and then the new guy comes in, it's and he's got a MacBook there. too. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah. Sorry. All right. All right. Uh, there's, do- there's dozens of us. Um, but if you do, if you have a MacBook, uh, this is a device called the Dock Case Adapter, and it snaps onto your MacBook power supply and uh, has a pass-through for the power. It's not a pass-through. It's it's uh, taking the USB-C power, and it's splitting it into a, a dock that's right there. So you get the power out to go back to the MacBook. And then you've got some ports on it. And they have various models that offer different capabilities. Some are USB uh, 3.0 and HDMI if you need video. Some are USB 3.0 and then high high power charging uh, for a USB charging port. I had the one with the, the USB charging. And just traveling in Vegas this week, it's super handy because you've got to have your power or your adapter anyway to keep the macbook powered up and you might as well have a dock built into it so you don't have to carry something else so it's all together in one piece plug it in connect all your devices you can charge you can use it as a a dock to get usb type a ports into your macbook so uh something to check out there uh they start at like 50 bucks gonna go up to i think 75 uh based on the size of the adapter and the number the port selection so if you've got one and you travel it's a way to have to consolidate things, to consolidate your MacBook charging as well as a dock built in. As well as your dongle collection. That is absolutely essential if you're mm-hmm. a MacBook user. Yep. Uh, but you know what, Jim? Have you ever considered cargo pants? Like, just pants that offer more pockets for all your dongles. Uh-huh. I did. Yes, I did. And then some okay. asshole told me that I shouldn't wear those. <laughs> hmm. 
I wonder who that would be. All right, so uh, my pick of the week is absolutely nothing practical or modern. It's uh, kind of a theme with me, but uh, this is Star Trek Phase 2. The, if you can see it on the camera, this book, uh, this yeah, is by Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens. Yeah. I mean, the book isn't from 1976, out. but... No, the, no, no, but the, the concept of Star Trek Phase 2 was... Yeah. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Like, not only is there, like, the whole story of, like, how they were going to bring Star Trek back to TV in the 70s. Like, not even that long after it was canceled, then the animated series came to TV, and then that was, you know, it it was, like, legitimate writing, the original voice uh, cast was there, and they said, you know what, why don't we bring this back to TV... So they they started right away in the mid seventies, and it's it's an interesting story. Just like the if you're interested in like the nuts and bolts of how, like what goes into the making of a TV series, what goes into like the like what's in the minds of like the uh, um, executives at a, a movie studio, because this went back and forth between whether it was going to be a, a film or whether it was going to be a TV series, and then it was going to be a TV movie, and then it ended up, you know, years later becoming like the the pilot episode for this series ended up being rewritten and made into star trek the motion picture but the episodes that were completely written and the the scripts are in this book were were used for star trek the next generation too so if you're a star trek fan like me uh it's just fascinating reading and this is one of those things where you have to get the book because i don't believe there's an audiobook version of it uh and i think the book is out of print so uh, I bought a used copy on Amazon. There's still other used copies available, but it's if you are interested at all in either just the, the history of TV or in Star Trek, then I found it fascinating. And it's it's poignant because we've just learned early this month that uh, the fourth Star Trek movie is the fourth of the new series has been canned. Apparently. <sighs> yeah, they went through different directors and then eventually, like Chris Pine said that he was out mm-hmm. and... You know, if you don't have Kirk, then it would be weird to recast the captain. And then, you know, unfortunately, uh, the actor who played Chekhov met an early end. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I almost wondered then if they weren't going to be doing a fourth. But, hey, we got three. Um Hey, plus there's a new uh, there's a new Picard series coming, right? Yeah, so I, yeah I keep on seeing sounds, news in my feed. <laughs> it sounds like they're going to destroy that, just like they did Discovery. So yeah, probably. Anyway, um, definitely uh, check out PCPro.com for our CES coverage and for the reviews that we have. We talked about like the R- RTX uh, 2060 new peripherals from Corsair. Lots of more stuff coming. Like CES, maybe uh, over. We're pretty much over at this point, but uh, there's a lot left. Yeah, we uh, got a monitor review coming up, and also uh, some pieces of ARM news that are kind of interesting. So, hey, we'll hopefully have that in next week. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming. A lot of stuff I'm still working on. Plus, I need to do my part two of the the 2060 review. Get the 1440 results. Do uh, overclocking. Uh, check out uh, like when whenever DLSS becomes available, that'll be updated too. So the Port Royal benchmark came out while we were at CES, so that needs to be uh, put through its paces. So yeah. anyway, and just because you don't have enough to do already, well, you you've got some uh, third party 2060s coming your way too. So oh boy, yeah. uh, I guess when I overclock, I can do a little group. All right, well, uh, for all of us at PC Per, uh, thank you, and uh, I guess we can go around the horn. 
I'm Sebastian Peak. We don't have to, but I'm Josh Walworth. And I'm Jim Tannis, and my legs still hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a transition period for us. I still don't know how to end the show, so. Thank you for Good watching. Good night. There Bye. you go. Bye. All right. <laughs>